0: Of Normandy, D Day. But this year on June 6, we were driving across Kansas and it was the day before my birthday. Coming home after a great trip as a family, enjoying being with Christians in Oregon. But it was only later that I discovered what happened in Forsyth County, Georgia on June 6th. A family was going to bed, they heard something outside. It sounded like a wounded animal near their house in the woods. They called the Sheriff's Department. The Sheriff's Department appropriately responded, and after searching, they found a little girl in a trash bag laying near that house. Now, I'm happy to report that that little girl, baby India, is doing well. And over the past several days, we've heard news reports about a search for her birth parents. There have been hundreds of requests to adopt her and care for her and raise her, including a number of sheriff's deputies, deputies. It's made the national news as we've thought about how someone could take a little girl so precious and abandon her. And while we might think about the good and all of those who want to love her and care for her, it reminded me of a parable that we actually read in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 16. It's a story that I've referenced before, but it's the powerful story of Israel, how God found her abandoned in a field like a precious little girl. He found her there, and her parents had clearly neglected her and failed to care for her. And he found her and cared for her, cleaned her up, gave her beautiful adornment, helped her to grow into a beautiful young lady. And Ezekiel 16 tells the story of how precious little Israel grew and flourished and prospered, but tragically turned against the God that had blessed her so richly. And towards the end of that chapter, there's a a twist as she's confronted for her sin. And God mercifully says, please come home to me. I want to redeem you and restore you. But it's a terrible story in some ways of what it looks like when that that little girl grew up to rebel against her father. Tonight, I want us to spend some time in Hebrews chapter 13 thinking about a promise that's made there in a rather unusual context of Hebrews that is often overlooked because there are several exhortations that were given in that last chapter that at first glance seem really random. I appreciated in the bulletin this week, Gary's article on this very passage and the way that the first several verses of Hebrews 13 call us back to God's mercy and His desire for us to live. And while it might seem that these are just random exhortations strung together, I think it makes sense in light of what we read elsewhere in this letter, and more importantly, it makes sense when we consider the consistency of God's Word and how this promise that God will not abandon us or forsake us is repeated again and again throughout the Old and New Testament. In the context of Hebrews chapter 13, we find a number of imperatives. The way that the writer here in verse 1 encourages us to love one another, admonishing us, let brotherly love continue, which implies that he knew it was already present among the believers there who were struggling in the faith. He's written to encourage them, reminding them that there are better promises, there's a better priest, there's a better covenant. Hebrews is really a letter slash sermon that's about our Lord Jesus and how he's just simply put better. Let your brotherly love continue, he says in verse one. Verse two, he encourages us to show hospitality, reminding us of the ways of old, that people entertained angels and were not even aware of those circumstances, that we ought to show loving kindness and favor, not only towards our brethren, but also towards those who are outside, those in the world who desperately need to see the love of Christ Jesus. In verse 3, we're encouraged to remember not only the prisoners, that important part at the beginning of that verse, but also all of those who were abused or mistreated as if we are there with them in body. Reminding us of what Jesus says in Matthew 25, starting in verse 31 about judgment. How judgment isn't just about what we know or what we say or how we serve. It's about how we show that love and demonstrate that kindness towards those who are most in need. Those who perhaps are most vulnerable. Verse 4, we are encouraged to honor marriage. That marriage bed that is holy and undefiled an appropriate place for that sort of commitment and love to be expressed. And again, it's easy to see why some read these verses and think that it's sort of just sewn together here. It's as if the inspired writer is just wanting to give us several exhortations there at the end of this letter, and and it seems random. But then we see the way that it's all connected. It's connected back to the character of God. When we read in verse 5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money being content with what you have. For he himself has said, here's that promise of old, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, verse 6, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? And so in those last two verses, it's there that we see that need to be content, to not allow our desire for material things to compel us to be motivated by worldly thinking, treating others in a spirit of rivalry rather than brotherly love, returning to the theme of verse 1. And how we then can respond to God's love and the way that He's demonstrated His kindness towards us, even when we suffer the, the appropriate and confident response to God's promise of protection and presence is to worship Him, acknowledging that as we live for Him, we can do so without fear because we fear Him. We know how good and holy He truly is. When we return to the verse that really is the foundation for our lesson tonight, verse 5, it's interesting here to note a couple of things. The word you that's used four times in this verse, all four of those occurrences are in the singular, meaning that He's not necessarily trying to speak to the entire group as would be indicated in the plural, but rather is identifying that group Throughout this passage, we see that call. But it's not only that, it's the reality that the language that's being used here is again rooted in the character and in the faithfulness of God. That verb at the end of this verse, forsake, could also be translated abandon. It's the same word that's used from the cross when Jesus, in referencing what is said in Psalm 22 with regard to God's forsaking Him, in Matthew 27 and verse 46 and also in Mark 15 and verse 34 we see that same language used there ironically that same verb is used three chapters earlier in Hebrews 10 25 where we're admonished to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some we might forsake we might abandon but here in this beautiful passage we're reminded of that promise of old that God will not abandon God will not forsake I love the negative here, it sounds odd, but in the original language, it's interesting that the never that's repeated, that there's really parallelism in this promise, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, that's an emphatic negative. It's a way as if the writer here is saying and echoing the language that we'll look at in a few minutes from the Old Testament, I will never ever leave you, I will never ever forsake you. Perhaps it's easy in a lesson to lose sight of the main point. So let's be clear. The point of this passage and the point of this lesson is simply this. God will never abandon us. He will never forsake us. Tragically, we might forget that it's not just the infants who are sometimes abandoned. Perhaps you've experienced that. Someone who had made a promise or a commitment to you walking out of your life. Choosing something other than you or someone other than you. The pain that's associated with that. And perhaps if that's a parent or a loved one or a coworker, or whatever that relationship might be, someone even who claimed to be a Christian, it's hard to, to get beyond that initial feeling of betrayal. And, and tonight's lesson isn't really getting beyond that feeling because in some ways that pain will always be present to some extent. But the reality is, in light of other people forsaking us, in light of other people failing us, let's give thanks to God. Let's praise Him for His faithfulness and a promise like this that's not a rash vow, that's a call back to the reality that God is good and that He has made this commitment to us when truthfully He has every reason to forsake us. We've given Him every opportunity to abandon us. Our sin really contrast with His holiness. And yet, by His loving kindness and mercy, He has pursued us and continues to pursue a relationship with us in faithfulness. When you think about the readers of this particular letter, I find it incredibly compelling to look back a few chapters and to think sometimes we spend so much time for good reason focusing on faith that we might fail to see what it is these readers had experienced and their own walk of faith, these who understood that faith cost them, as the writer here is talking about their experiences, he highlights how in Hebrews 10, verse 32, in former days, after they had been enlightened, in other words, after they had come to faith, they had come to know Jesus, they were growing in the faith, they endured, this is the language of Hebrews 11, verse 32, a great conflict of sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed, verse 34, sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Think back to those imperatives that we saw in the first five verses, first six verses, really, of Hebrews 13. How in verse 3 they're told to remember the prisoners. That might be a little bit easier for them to do considering that some of them had been prisoners for their faith. How they're told not to love money, to be content with what it is they have. How difficult that must have been for some of these Christians who had lost their property, who perhaps had been put in financial peril because of the things that had happened to them as a result of their faith, wondering where the next meal is going to come from, wondering what's going to happen assets have been seized. It's easy to see how these Christians in particular might have benefited from being reminded that God is present. He's a protector. He's one who will be faithful to his people. He will not forsake them. He will not abandon them. So two commandments, especially in verse five of Hebrews. Remember what Jesus says about money? How in Matthew chapter six and verse 24, he makes it clear that you can't love both God and mammon. How in Luke's gospel on several occasions, Jesus talks about greed and the temptation there is for us to put our trust in money. That's one of the key themes of Luke's account in particular. But how in Luke chapter 12 and verse 15, Jesus says that we ought to avoid grief, greed at all costs. How in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10, we're reminded that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and that sadly some have departed from the faith and they have fallen in the faith because of their love and their pursuit of financial things. It's not as if Hebrews 13 is the only passage that talks about money and the risk of putting our trust in material things. But these Christians in particular, and perhaps those of us who are blessed to live in prosperity who don't really have to wonder about where the next meal is going to come from, who are going to be able to return in just a little while to an air-conditioned home and enjoy the pleasures of a life that God's blessed us with. Sometimes perhaps it's easy for us to forget that those possessions are a gift from God. As we were reminded of this morning from Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11, we ought not put our trust in those things. We ought to be content with our blessings. We ought to want to desire to honor God with the gifts that He's given us. Which means that not only do we avoid in the negative this commandment in verse 5 that makes sure that our character is free from the love of money, but that we also in that second imperative be content with what we have. And notice that these aren't just commands. They're commands that are tied to a promise. Those parallel promises, which in some ways reiterate the same theme, the same great hope that God's given us. And when you look back through the Old Testament, perhaps if you have a translation or a Bible that likes to offer help with regard to perhaps where this has come from, it's interesting to hear the discussion because there are eight places in the Old Testament where a like this, where God or an inspired spokesman for God says, I will not abandon you. I will not forsake you. The two that are most likely at the heart of Hebrews 13, verse 5, or Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. That's the one that's closest in the English. Deuteronomy 31 and verse 6 is actually closer in the original language, but in all these occasions. How back in Genesis 28, God said to Jacob, I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised for you. And how we see that trajectory follow through how God is faithful. His character is foundational to the promises he's made, his character is foundational for the assurance that those Jews of old and those Christians under the better covenant could have as they trusted more in God's power than in their own ability. Trusted more in God's power than in their own wealth or their ability to fix their problems. How twice in Deuteronomy 31, Moses speaking on behalf of God to the people of Israel as they prepared to enter into a land where they would have great wealth and a great temptation to forsake the one who had blessed them with the opportunity to enter into that land and to have military victory despite their own inadequacies, Moses says that God had made that promise. That's likely what's being echoed here in Hebrews 13 and verse 5. I will not forsake you. I will not fail you. That promise is reiterated from God to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, and we see that continue on. How David speaks to his son Solomon as he's preparing to build the temple in 1 Chronicles 28 makes a similar statement. I believe David had likely heard that his whole life, read those words in the law, in the books of Moses, had heard that repeated as he desired to honor God as a man for God's own. David himself would write words similar to that in Psalm 37 verse 28. The Lord does not forsake His godly ones as the prophet Isaiah and Isaiah 41 verse 17 would say something very similar. It's easy to sometimes, I think, take a sound bite, like Hebrews 13 verse 5 and remove that from its context, but we ought not do that. We ought not neglect to see that this is tied contextually to the problem that these Christians had. And sometimes we have when we find ourselves in distress rather than trusting in God. We want to grab a hold of every material thing we can get our hands on. We want to build fortresses and try to find a way to have security on our own when God says, yes, be a good steward of your blessing, work hard, provide for your family, do your best with the gifts that I've given you, but ultimately, trust me. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to forsake you. And in many ways, what Hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6, verse 6, a quotation from Psalm 118 and verse 6, really shows us an appropriate response. How we can then have God honoring confidence, not arrogance, not thinking that we're somehow able because of our own wisdom or our strength or our ability to rest on our laurels and get by on our own goodwill. That's not what verse six is saying. Verse verse six says we have confidence because of God's promise. The way that's repeated at the beginning of that verse, the Lord is my helper. And it's because of the Lord's promise and presence that I'm not going to be afraid. It doesn't matter what people threaten. It doesn't matter who walks out of my life. Now, I feel that. I'm certainly the one who's going to be harmed by that. That's going to impact me. I'm going to learn from that. But as long as God is with me, I have life and I have victory and I have hope and I have an opportunity to teach those others in my life, perhaps children who've also been impacted by that same sort of forsaking and abandonment. I have an opportunity to show them that even though sometimes earthly fathers fail, our Heavenly Father will never fail. Sometimes people that we love fail. God will never fail. And God be praised for His faithfulness. And so as we think about what the writer of Hebrews, as he's persuading us to live this out, to reflect on our own experiences, I think simply put, there are three observations from Hebrews 13 verse 5 that are really in the text but more importantly, in the character of God. It's fine to be a good steward. We need to talk about stewardship rather than selfishness, selflessness, being those who are known for our generosity. That's really a part of the theme that we see throughout these five verses. But some of us are going to have to learn to trust in God rather than our own ability to store up treasure. To put in place all the systems in the world that will allow us to be protected. There are days, there are hours, there are moments where we find that those systems fail. And what we're left with is faith. Faith in a God who will not forsake us or abandon us. Faith that we share with our brothers and sisters who are there with us when we're in the valley of the shadow of death. And when we're celebrating together on the mountaintop of victory, it means that we trust in God. And while we use those gifts, we see the limited nature of those gifts. It seems to me that in Scripture, there's a balance. Romans 12, 3 reminding us that we ought not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but to think soberly. Why? Because God's given you a measure of faith. Use those gifts, but remember who the blesser is. But on the other end of the spectrum, we ought to make sure that we remember that we're made in the image of God. We've been given gifts. We have a place at the table in the kingdom of God. We are priests ministering to gather in the better covenant. We have value. People might tell us otherwise. We've reflected on this recently as a theme in our preaching. People might want to tell us otherwise with regard to our skills or our looks or what we're known for. People can be harsh, but God's faithful. He not only desires to be with us, He desires for us to seek His will. And to find reconciliation by coming in contact with the blood of His Son, Jesus, which is the ultimate demonstration of God's faithfulness. God forsook His Son from what Jesus cries at the cross so that He might keep His Word, so that He might redeem us and reconcile us to Himself. We trust Him. And in addition to that, we seek others rather than hoarding money, rather than storing up treasure and, and finding ways to have so-called financial security in and of ourselves, we need to learn to be generous. I find it incredibly compelling as we continue reading in Hebrews 13. Again, the temptation is to stop reading where the sermon ends. But if we skip down to verse 16, as he continues talking here about the blessing of being a Christian and following Jesus and being faithful, look at verse 16 of Hebrews 13. It's not just enough to to make sure that we're free from the love of money, that we're content with what we have. Here He challenges us, don't neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. It's It's the God of heaven who's blessed us with the ability to have these material things, and it's the God of heaven who's honored when we share these things, when we're willing to divest ourselves of those riches so that others might be blessed, so that others might see how great and good God is. We don't just say be warmed and filled. We don't just offer lip service. We're willing to get involved in ministries. Not simply putting money into that, although that's a part of the equation, but desiring with our lives, with our hands, to give of ourselves as God first gave to us. That's at the heart of what Hebrews 13 is calling us back to. And as we trust God, and as we're... We're also faithful. And I really think that's what this whole letter, what perhaps this whole book from Genesis to Revelation calls us back to the need to be faithful. That doesn't mean that we're gonna just walk through faith and never struggle, never wonder, never have questions, never doubt, never sometimes stray from the path of righteousness that we desire to walk down. I think sometimes the lack of trust makes people think that we, some of us, have it all together. None of us have it all together. That's why we need the grace of God. That's why we need the blood of Jesus. That's why we need one another. That's why we need to confess and to be real about our struggles and our, and our transgressions. And so as the writer of Hebrews is talking to real people about real sin and real struggles, and as we desire to be real in serving our faithful God, not wavering doesn't mean be perfect. It means be resolute and continue walking in faithfulness. Trusting that God, not just in this moment of prosperity when things are right in my life and I feel good, but tomorrow when tragedy could beset me or my family where things are very different than they are tonight, God's still faithful. God's still present. God still calls me to walk with Him. He's good and He's holy and He's right there with us from start to finish. I think that when we teach God's Word, we desire to call people to action, and that's appropriate. It's appropriate to call people to act and to respond to what it is God's Word is persuading us to hear. But let's not miss the fact that any action we take is built on the foundation of the action God's already taken. God's already acted in our favor, His flawless character. His faithful promise, the way that we see this in the life of Israel, the way we see it in the life of these Christians that the Hebrews writer was addressing, I wonder what those Christians learned about God's presence as their property was taken, as some of them was, they were carted off to prison, as some of them saw loved ones be killed because of their faith. What did they learn on that occasion about the faithfulness of God? And so it might be that some read this passage and take these imperatives to heart, and God be praised for that. But let's note that this is all a faithful response to God's faithful response. He saw our sin and our need, and He acted in our favor, and He's walked with us step by step. I think sometimes it's easy for us to ask, Where's God? And it might be that in those moments of struggle, we convince ourselves that He's not present that somehow He has forsaken us or abandoned us. But isn't it amazing how as Christians, retrospectively, we can look back at His providence and we can see years down the road, perhaps it takes several years, that even then He was there. He was faithful. God will never abandon us. But we may make the choice to walk. And you know what we learn about God on that occasion? We learn that God is just. That God is the God of judgment who will reward the righteous and punish the wicked. He is gracious and He desires a relationship with all, but the promise of eternal life is conditional. But we also learn that God is patient. The language of Acts 17, 30, and 31, that the reason judgment has been delayed has nothing to do with God's negligence and everything to do with God's grace. He desires that all people everywhere repent. He desires that we hear the Word and respond to Him. He patiently waits. I don't know what we're all dealing with, but perhaps as we've been reflecting on the Word of God, we're struggling with the reality of something that just seems unbearable and too big, and we wonder, God, why haven't You acted in the way I wanted You to act? Why haven't You done what it was I asked You to do? How could you allow this to happen? Or how could you allow that not to happen? And tonight, perhaps, it's simply time to step back and in faith say, God, I don't necessarily understand why this is happening or why that's not happening. But let me just pause and thank you for being present. Thank you for being present. Thank you for the promise of Psalm 46, verses 1 and 2. That you are a refuge. You are my strength and my ever present help in a time of trouble. I'm not going to fear. Even as the earth changes, even as everything around me is tumultuous, even as these giant mountains fall into the sea, as relationships change, as we encounter death, as we encounter shocking news, it seems, on a weekly basis, I'm thankful that God is faithful and that God made the promise that he will never forsake us or abandon us. I don't know of anything a human being ever experiences in this life that's harder than being forsaken or abandoned. I wonder, I'm convinced, that God knows it and that his desire in making this promise, page after page in the Old Testament, And near the end of the epistle to the Hebrews, again in a section of Scripture that if not read carefully, seems to just be a random assortment of exhortations. That in a world where people experience unbelievable heartbreak, have their faith betrayed, have relationships shattered, and dreams crushed, that God is a God who is faithful. And tonight, He desires for us to understand that He will never forsake us or abandon us. Aren't you thankful for that blessing? That regardless of what it is that we might be facing, what guilt we experience, we may be the one who walked out on someone else and as we desire to be reconciled and to make those things right, isn't it wonderful to know that God is faithful and that even though others may betray us and hate us and slander us, that God is faithful and He's present. And he calls us to reconciliation. I don't know your sins, but I know mine. And when I think about God's willingness to allow me by his grace to respond to him, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming to think about his loving kindness and patience, but that's who he is. And he calls us home. If you've not yet come in contact with the blood of Jesus Christ, that's a demonstration of that promise coming in faith turning from that sin that's beset us and that's defined us for too long, but allowing through the confession of Jesus as our Lord coming in contact with his blood represented in the waters of baptism. What a new opportunity, a new beginning. And we act as if sometimes in the way we talk about it is if that's just a a one-time event and that it has no impact on the rest of our Christian life, but it's possible as we walk in the faith to fall away from that love, to allow the love of money or a lack of contentment or abandonment or whatever it is that has caused us to struggle in the faith to become such a huge obstacle that we not only give up on other people, we give up on God. I'm not accusing anybody in this room of giving up on God. But if we've ever had that thought, if we've ever had that struggle, if we've ever wondered where he is, he's here. He's faithful. He's made the promise and he's never broken it and he never will. Don't walk out on him. He will never walk out on you. If you draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. What a great God. Tonight may be the night. Whether in public or due to a private conversation, love is the motivation. That's who our God is. Let's return to him and seek reconciliation as together we stand and sing.